chapter 2, we'll begin reading at verse 12. So let's read together the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Now, Lord, open our hearts that we may hear and receive what the Spirit will say to us in the midst of the preaching. I pray that your word, which is living and active, will become even more alive and active in our hearts as we hear it today. I lift up other life-giving churches and I pray blessing upon them. I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. And I pray especially for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith. I ask that you will draw them back to a place of repentance so that not one of them will be lost. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your presence. Now touch us today. Transform us by the work of your spirit as you speak to us during the time of preaching. I pray this in the only name that matters, the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. By the time the beloved elder John was writing this letter to the church at Pergamum, the city had been well known throughout the world as a great capital city for almost 400 years. Pergamum was famous for its library, which contained 200,000 scrolls, second only to the unique library of Alexandria. It was in Pergamum that scholars invented parchment, which was made from the skins of animals that eventually replaced papyrus as the primary writing material. In fact, the word parchment itself is derived from Pergamum. Not only was Pergamum a great cultural center, it was also one of the great religious centers of the ancient world. Pergamum regarded itself as the custodian of the Greek way of life and of Greek worship. Pergamum was situated on a high conical-shaped hill, and in memory of a great victory they had won over the invading Gauls, the people of Pergamum erected a massive altar to Zeus 
in front of the temple of Athene. The altar stood 40 feet high out on a projecting ledge of rock. All day it smoked with the sacrifices offered to Zeus. Around the base of this altar was carved one of the greatest achievements in the world of sculpture, which was a depiction of the battle of the giants in which the gods of Greece were victorious over the giants of the barbarians. In addition to the grand altar, Pergamum was particularly connected with the worship of Asclepius. Asclepius was supposedly the god of healing, and his temples were the nearest approach to hospitals that you could find in the ancient world. I suspect, however, that most of us wouldn't be comfortable being treated at these hospitals with their methods of healing. The emblem of Asclepius was the serpent. One of the treatments of disease involved the one in need of healing going to the temple of Asclepius to worship. And part of that worship for the healing of the disease involved laying on the floor in a large room and allowing snakes to slither all over your body. Of course, maybe it was the concern with how you were going to be healed that kept you well. I'm not sure. You know, it's just, are you sick? To, no, I'm fine. Feeling good. Feeling great. Never felt better. Not only was Pergamum a great cultural and religious center, but Pergamum was also a great administrative center. It was the center of Caesar worship for the province. It was the place where men were required on the pain of death to take the name of Lord and give it to Caesar. To refuse to do so would mean death, and usually that death would be horribly painful. Pergamum was known for its pagan temples and pagan lifestyle. It was known for its insistence upon the worship of Caesar. And yet, even here, there was a fellowship of believers who followed the Lord Jesus Christ. A church had been established in this pagan city, and the Lord Jesus was walking in the midst of the church one day. After observing what was happening, he decided he needed to send them a letter. As we turn our attention to this letter, I want you to first of all see that there were in this church at Pergamum some faithful Christ followers. In verse 13, Jesus tells about the dwelling of these believers. He says, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. This place was so pagan that the Lord refers to it as Satan's throne, his seat of authority. When Jesus uses that word dwell, that word means to stay permanently as opposed to running away or seeking an escape. Put down roots. Most of the time, those who are followers of Jesus are described as sojourners. You know, we're only here for a short time on a temporary basis. But this wasn't the case with these believers at Pergamum. They were surrounded by Satan's influence and authority. They were right in the middle of oppressive evil, and yet they stuck it out. They stayed. They refused to be swayed and moved. Now, there's something you need to know about your spiritual enemy. He is not the flip side of God. He's not the opposite of God. He's not the dark side to God's light side. 
God is omnipresent. That is, he is everywhere all at the same time. Not so with your spiritual enemy. He is limited to being at one place at any given time. Which is why I sometimes question, you know, people want to say, you know, the devil's been giving me such a hard time. Really? I mean, he singled you out of all of the multitudes of people in this world because he can only be in one place at one time. It probably wasn't him. He does, however, have a hierarchy. There's a chain of command in the realm of evil. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, and says that your struggle is against what? The rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So there is this hierarchy, this chain of command. Here in Revelation chapter 2, the Lord says that Satan has set up his throne, his seat of authority, right here in the city of Pergamum. This church to whom he is writing has been established right at the center of the most wicked place on the earth. They weren't just passing through. They had put down roots. They had dug in for the long haul. They had decided that if Satan was going to erect his throne in the city, they weren't going to wait for him to come against them, but they were going to take the battle right to his very doorstep. Not only does verse 13 talk about the dwelling of those faithful Christ followers, it also talks about their devotion. The Lord continues in this verse and says, And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Even in the midst of this pagan city, the place of Satan's throne, this church was able to maintain a strong and unwavering public testimony. They did not deny the name of the Lord. There was no mistaking the fact that they were followers of Jesus, even though they were subjected to persecution. As an example of their witness, the Lord writes of Antipas and and his faithfulness, or the faithfulness of the church, even when he was killed. Now, Antipas isn't mentioned in any other place in the Bible, but from what we can discover from history and from tradition, Antipas was martyred for the faith in a most gruesome manner. According to tradition, he was placed in a hollow brass bull. A fire was built beneath it, and Antipas was literally roasted to death. I just wonder what would happen if we said, all right, you can become a member of Restoration Church, but if you do, you'll probably be required to stand before a judge and renounce your faith in Jesus. If you refuse to do that, you'll probably be roasted to death in a brass bull. I just wonder how long it would take to purge the membership rolls. What a commendation for that church in Pergamum to be recognized by Jesus that even with such pressure and suffering, the church remained loyal to him and continued to have a strong public testimony to their faith. Well, after a commendation like that, you might get the impression that this was a super church. What a faithful congregation. And everything would be wonderful if that were the whole picture. But there's more to the story. The Lord Jesus continues writing in verses 14 and 15, and now he gives a stinging rebuke. Not only 
were there some faithful Christ followers in the church at Pergamum, but there were also some false creeds. The first word of verse 14 sounds the alarm, but. But I have a few things against you. Can't you just see the pastor of this church as he's reading this letter and he gets to this word, but. Now, wait a minute, Lord. Look, we've been faithful. I just want, I want to remind you about this. We've put up with a lot. We've struggled. We've suffered for your cause. We put our life on the line. Our dear brother Antipas lost his life. We've stayed when we wanted to run. It isn't li easy living under oppression and persecution. It isn't easy living where Satan's throne is. Listen, staying power and faithful allegiance are important, but Jesus says that in itself isn't always enough. The one thing that nullifies all the steadfastness and all the faithfulness of the believers in Pergamum is the very thing that will nullify your witness and your effectiveness and your right standing before God. The problem in Pergamum and the problem with much of the church today is the problem of compromise. In verse 14, Jesus says, you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Then in verse 15, he says, you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The issue is one of compromise. You see, the most common word for the followers of Jesus in the New Testament is hagios. The basic meaning of that word is different or separate. It's where we get our word holy. The temple is hagios because it's different from other buildings. The Sabbath day is hagios because it's set apart and different from other days. God is supremely hagios because he is totally different from other men and from all of creation. The follower of Jesus is hagios because he or she is different from other people. Now, however, we have in the church certain elements who try to tell us that we shouldn't have this great difference, but instead we should seek for ways to get along. They would try to persuade believers who are called to be inherently different that there is nothing wrong with a prudent conformity to the standards of the world. As a result, what we see happening is that the world is starting to influence the church rather than the church influencing the world. Now, you just as well to hang tight with me for a little bit because this is going to get fun after a while, all right? The reference to Balaam takes us back to an Old Testament story found in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 25. You remember that story. If you don't remember anything else, you probably remember the part about the talking donkey. All right, in that story tells how Balak, king of the Moabites, hired Balaam to come and curse Israel for him. Balaam was apparently a pretty successful prophet in those days, and he was summoned by Balak, who promised him a great deal of money for his services. Balaam realized he couldn't curse someone if God decided to bless him, and sure enough, that's just what happened. Every time he opened his mouth, instead of a curse, out came a blessing. Finally, Balak just sent him back home in disgust. 
But Balaam, in order to not completely forfeit his fee, gave Balak a plane a plan for Israel's downfall. He realized that the only way Israel was going to be cursed was if God cursed her. The only way God would do that would be if Israel was violating his commands. So Balaam counseled Balak to get the Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men. If he couldn't curse Israel, he could at least corrupt Israel. Once the Israelite men started to take the Moabite women, not only was there sexual immorality, but the women then began to influence them to begin worshiping their false pagan gods. Once they were inside the tent, their influence began to be felt immediately. That was the problem here in Pergamum. They had people within the congregation who were advocating this kind of compromise. They began to reason that since an idol wasn't really a god, an idol didn't really have any power. Then it was harmless to bow down before a stone image because since it wasn't really deity, then it wasn't really worship. Things would go a lot easier if they would just go ahead and say, Caesar is Lord with their lips, but they didn't have to really mean it in their hearts. Things would go a lot easier in their lives if they would just blend in with the rest of the culture and bow in front of the pagan idol because it didn't really mean anything if they did. It's an issue of compromise. And I have to tell you that this is one of the greatest problems that has to be faced and overcome, not only by the historical church, but by the modern church and by the lives of individual people who call themselves followers of Jesus as well. See, too often we are like Israel after she had been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. The decree was issued that she could return to her homeland. She could go back and live in the city of Jerusalem, rebuild the walls, restore the temple, resume the worship of Jehovah. But they had a hard time getting people to pack their bags and leave Babylon. See, They had gotten comfortable in the enemy's camp. They had learned to live with less than their full inheritance. They had even become prosperous in the exile. They started to look and act and think more like Babylonians than they did the people of God. In Nehemiah's time, they even struggled to find people who could remember their own language so they could teach the language to their children. And I want to tell you, this is the danger we face. It's easy to follow the patterns and the thinking and the lifestyle of the world around us. It's so much easier to just go with the flow than it is to swim against the tide. If we're honest, we'll find a multitude of ways in which our thinking and our language and our lifestyles have become full of contradictions. See, with one hand, we try to hold on to God, and with the other, we try to embrace the world. You know you've embraced the language of the world system when you start talking about luck and coincidence and good fortune instead of blessing and providence. Compromise with the world tolerates outbursts of anger and gossip as well. That's, you know, that's just who we are. Compromise with the world allows you to party in the nightclub on Saturday night and then worship with the saints on Sunday morning. Compromise with the world participates in dirty joke telling around the office on Monday after you've been singing the songs of Zion on Sunday. Compromise with the world keeps stirring the pot of negativity and fear and doubt. Compromise with the world looks the other way when a believer is linked with a non-believer, whether it's in a business venture or a romantic relationship. Compromise with the world ignores things like gluttony, gluttony, 
and bitterness and adultery and homosexuality and slothfulness and self-sufficiency and pride and a host of other things that are in opposition to the will and the purpose of God because the culture deems those things personal choices and not that big of a deal. Compro are y'all doing okay out there? I'm just getting wound up. Compromise with the world worries more about offending the party line than it does being true to the Word of God. Compromise with the world isn't about conservative against liberal or Democrat against Republican or black against white. It's about taking what God calls evil and tolerating it and even then calling it good. Compromise with the world system allows people to remain immature, to refuse to challenge them to grow up in their faith, and instead spends all its energy trying to keep spiritual babies happy and content. I want to tell you, as the people of God, we must never forget that there is something called absolute truth, and that truth is the Word of God. Everything is not relative. Everything is not permissible. People are valuable, must always be accepted, but acceptance should never imply approval when the behavior is in opposition to God's word. There, there are some boundaries we dare not cross. There are some landmarks that must remain intact. Staying power and faithfulness are not enough. Jesus is calling for a distinction between people of faith and the people of this world. Jesus is calling for a line of demarcation to be drawn between righteousness and unrighteousness. Jesus is calling for a bride that is without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. Jesus is looking for some people who haven't forgotten how to speak the language of their new birth citizenship. He's looking for somebody who knows how to speak the language of love and hope and healing. He's looking for somebody who knows how to speak the language of truth and righteousness and justice and holiness. He's looking for somebody who knows how to speak the language of grace and mercy and forgiveness. He's looking for somebody who's more concerned about obedience to God's word than you are about the latest opinion poll or being politically correct or being culturally sensitive. Listen, the temptation to compromise with the false creeds is so very real, but you are different. You are separate. You are distinct. You are hagios. You are called out, chosen, redeemed, sanctified, holy, set apart for a high and holy purpose. And the overcoming power you need is never going to flow through you until you make up your mind to start living a life that is consistent with the call God has placed upon you as his beloved. Aren't you glad you had a good time of worship before I started preaching? There are faithful Christ followers. There are false creeds. Then I want you to see that there is a fearful command. The Lord writes in verse 16, Repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. When Balaam caused Israel to sin in the Old Testament, the Lord sent a plague against Israel and 24,000 people died. Now, 
to those who are following those same teachings and to those who are leading the people to follow them, the Lord says, repent. Or else. Did any of you have a, a parent or a grandparent that said, if you don't straighten up, you know, you get right or else? Man, I hated that or else part. The Lord says, repent or else. I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against you. If you're compromising with the world, repent. If your talk and your walk aren't matching up with the word of God, repent. Turn around. Stop and reroute your life now, immediately, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. You know, in the very beginning of this letter... He identifies himself as the one who holds the sharp two-edged sword. That sword is the word of God. That sword is described in Hebrews 4.12 when the writer says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Here's what I know. You are not going to be judged by the creeds and doctrines of the denomination. You're not going to be judged by the opinion of the pastor. You're not going to be judged by the traditions of the church body. Hmm. The Word of God is the measuring stick. The Word of God is the guideline. It's the Word of God that reveals the heart of the Father. It's the Word of God that establishes the boundaries. And, and at the end of the way, you're not going to have to answer to whether you live by what anybody else thought only by what the Word of God says. You know, this is why there's such an attack against the Word. The question that became the stumbling block all the way back in the garden is the same question that's tripping up so many people today. It's the question that the serpent asked Eve. Has God said? See, once you question God's Word, everything else is up for debate. This is why the authenticity and the authority and the accuracy of the word must be established. If the word says do it, then do it. The word says don't do it, then don't. The word says love it, love it. If the word says hate it, hate it. If God's word says something is sin, stay away from it. If God's word says something is truth, follow it. Change your mind, change your heart, repent. Change your life so that every area lines up with the Word. When you get away from the truth of the Word, that's when you get into, com into compromise. And, 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 and it never happens all at once. It doesn't happen with one giant transgression. I don't know anybody that just kind of wakes up one morning and says, well, you know, today I think I'm just going to chuck the Bible. I don't believe it. Doesn't happen that way. It's a gradual process. Little by little, slowly over time, first one thing, then another. You gradually become accustomed to it. You gradually get hardened. You gradually become callous to something until it no longer bothers you. And then you begin to think, well, this is the way it's supposed to be. And the rest of us who are shouting against it are, well, we're just merely fanatics and out of touch with the times. But the Lord says, I'm getting ready to come against you if you don't repent. I'm getting ready to put the measuring line of my word 
against your life. If you are compromising, it's not the devil you're going to have to worry about. It's me. Anytime you see an area where your life isn't lined up in agreement with the word of God, the proper response is to repent. The penitent heart is always an acceptable posture before God. The psalmist sang in Psalm 51 and 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Well, thankfully, right on the heels of this warning, there is some good news. Anybody ready for some good news now that I've just kind of blasted you out of your seats today? I don't want to leave you on a downer, so let me, let me give you some good news so you can get out of here with it. I want to tell you about the good news before we finish up today. In verse 17, there's a wonderful promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, if you're tuned into the sound of heaven, pay attention to what the Spirit is saying. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. The promise here is really threefold. First, there's a promise of hidden manna. <clears throat> to a Jew, to eat of the hidden manna meant to enjoy the blessings of the Messianic age. Those who resist compromise, those who are true and faithful, those who repent of the compromise and return to the obedience of the word of the Lord, they are the ones who will be able to enter into the blessedness of the new world that will emerge when the kingdom comes. It's a picture of restored fellowship with God. If you overcome, if you don't cave into compromise, you will not need to eat forbidden things that have been sacrificed to idols. You can instead enjoy angel bread. You can taste heavenly food. Remember, Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. So this promise of hidden manna is nothing less than a promise that Jesus will give himself to the one who is faithful. Well, I thought I'd get a better shout out of you than that, <laughs> that you're going to get Jesus, but okay. <laughs> Thank you. Then there's the promise of a white stone and a new name. And those two together constitute a promise of divine favor. Not only do you get Jesus, but you get divine favor. In, see, in ancient times, a jury cast its votes by tossing white and black stones into an urn. And the white stone was associated with innocence or acquittal, the black with guilt. To those who repent and turn from the way of compromise, the promise is they will be given a white stone. It's a picture of being acquitted before God. Hallelujah. Not only that, but one of the most common of all customs in the ancient world was to carry an amulet or a charm. It might be made of precious metal or a precious stone, but often it was nothing more than a pebble. And on that pebble, there was written a sacred name. To know a God's name was to have a certain power over him, to be able to summon him to one's aid in time of difficulty, to have mastery over the demons. 
Such an amulet was thought to be doubly effective if no one other than the owner knew the name that was inscribed on that stone. Well, here, the Lord has the beloved John tell this church, your heathen friends, and and you did the same thing in your heathen days, they carry amulets with superstitious inscriptions on them, and they think those amulets will keep them safe. But I want to tell you, you don't need anything like that. You are safe in life, and you are safe in death, because you know the name of the only true God, and it is He who will keep you. See, you used to trust in yourself. You used to trust in some pagan deity. You used to trust in trying to not make waves and trying hard to fit in. But now that you have decided to be faithful to the word of God, now that you have overcome, I'm going to give you a stone that is the color of heaven's purity. I'm going to give you a name that you can call on at any time you find yourself on the verge of caving in. Oh, you may sometimes find yourself at the foot of Satan's throne. You may find yourself undergoing intense pressure to compromise. Oh, but if you'll just call on my name, I will deliver you. That's the Lord's promise to you today. So if you're being tempted, just call on his name. If you're being persecuted, call on his name. If you're being tested, call on his name. If you're in need of deliverance, just call on his name. If you're in distress, call on his name. If you're sick, Go ahead, call on his name. If you need a financial miracle, call on his name. If you think you can't take it another step, call on his name. If you think you can't go another day, call on his name. If the pressures of life are weighing you down, you just call on your name, on his name. If your heart is broken, call on his name. He will deliver you. That's his promise to you today. That's what he gives to you. He says, I give you my name. You just call on my name and I'll be your help in time of need. Praise God. Let's stand. I'm done. How's that for crash landing the plane? Just boom. I don't want to preach a minute past the anointing. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Why don't you just take a moment and just lift up your hands and thank the Lord for his name that he has given to us that we can call on in time of need and trouble. (coughs) Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your name. Hallelujah, hallelujah. It's a good key. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name, Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance 
after the rain. Jesus, 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 let all heaven and earth proclaim kings and kingdoms will all pass away but there's something about that Now with me just a moment, please. I want to pray with you today before we get out of here. And there are two specific groups that I feel the Spirit of the Lord directing me to for prayer. First of all, if you're here today and there's some area of your life that isn't lined up in agreement with God's Word, well, I've been preaching. It may not have been anything I said, but while I was preaching, the Holy Spirit has brought something to your attention. It says, this is not lined up with me, in agreement with me. God's call to you today is simply this, repent. Repent of leaving God out of your life. Repent of going your way instead of God's way. And that's the first group that I want to be praying with. And if that's you, if the Spirit of the Lord has spoken to you of, of some area, you say, Pastor, I know that there's, a, there's an area that's out of alignment. I've been going my way, not God's way. Could I just see your hand, please? Just put it up for a second. Yeah, you can put it right back down. Hands all over the house. Maybe it's not that you've been willfully ignoring God and going your own way, doing something like that. Maybe you've just been stumbling. You keep tripping over something. You need the help of the Lord to reroute. I want to tell you, today can be a fresh, new start in your walk with Jesus. And if that's you, and you say, Pastor, I've, I recognize I, 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 I've just tripped up. I've been stumbling in this place, and I need to turn around. I need, I need the help of the Lord to reroute it. Let me see your hand, please. Yeah. yeah. See, here's what I know. You don't have to come forward. You don't have to have me lay hands on you. All you just need is in your mind and in your heart, right where you are, change course change your mind turn it around and allow Jesus to touch you to right where you are Father in the name of Jesus I'm thanking you for people who are honest before you I'm thanking you for your word that speaks to us so clearly today it's not just something from dusty pages of history but it is alive and active today you're speaking to your church thank you for that now Lord People have lifted their hands saying that they need to repent, saying they need to be rerouted. They need to stop ignoring you. They need to line back up with, in agreement with your word in an area of their lives. So I pray that you, one, give us the courage to do that. And two, I pray that you will help us because we can't do this by ourselves. We don't ask for a sign. We don't ask for a feeling. We just ask, oh Lord, that today, the decision of our mind and of our heart, will it be in agreement with your will, 
with your spirit, with your word. And this today will be the turnaround that we need. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for hearing our prayer. We, as a decision of our will, we just say no to that area of compromise that we've been indulging. We say that no more. Instead, we say yes to you, Jesus. Yes to your word. Yes to your spirit. Yes to what you would have us to do. Thank you for hearing our prayer today, Lord. Thank you that when we come to you like this, you've promised that you'll not cast us aside, but you'll welcome us and you'll give us the strength we need to make it and to make good on the decision we make today. We put our trust in you and in you alone. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Now, why don't you just take a moment in your own heart, in your own words, your own mind, and why don't you just say to the Lord, here I am, Lord, I give this to you. Forgive me, I'm going your way now. Just take a moment and do that, would you? Recommit your life to him. Some of you may be committing your life to the Lord for the very first time. Just do that. Just say, here I am, Lord. Forgive me. I'm going to walk your way now. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the work of your spirit in this place right now, Lord Jesus.